when someone deeply listens to you. This is a poem by John Fox, often read in our healing circles through Healing Circles Global. When someone deeply listens to you, it's like holding out a dented cup you've had since childhood, watching it fill up with cold, fresh water. And when it balances on top of the brim, you are understood. And when it overflows and touches your skin, you are loved. When someone deeply listens to you, the room where you stay starts a new life. And the place where you wrote your first poem begins to glow in your mind's eye as if it was gold you had discovered. When someone deeply listens to you, your bare feet are on the earth and a beloved land that seemed distant is now at home within you. When someone deeply listens to you, what happens to us? What's the physical sensation when someone deeply, deeply listens to us? What are we doing here? What are we doing here each week on Friday morning in the heart of compassion, Sangha? Are we deeply listening to each other and to ourselves? Are we hearing the cries of the world? Are we opening ourselves to the practice of compassion? What is compassion? Frank goes into it in this chapter on hearing the cries of the world, talking about universal compassion, everyday compassion. The difference between empathy and compassion. And he tells us we don't need to be heroic. First step, deeply listening. First step, deeply receiving harder for so many of us to receive than give. So in response to this chapter, I started to think about what are the everyday ways of compassion that he talks about? That's what we're doing here. We're practicing everyday compassion and wisdom. 
We're part of a family, a worldwide net of Zen practitioners. Locally, regionally, nationally, globally. Frank says, this is a compassion that gets expressed when we help someone, when we feed the hungry, when we stand against injustice. We change soiled sheets or give a foot rub. When we listen generously to a friend's broken heart or when we contribute to an earthquake fund. How are you listening these days? Who are you turning to, to listen to you? So many of you, as I said, have written to say that you love this book, that it has really been special to you. Of course, having the author be such an awesome person uh, who comes and sits and joins us has added to our appreciation, our feeling of closeness, our feeling of intimacy within the practice. And that intimacy goes out in waves to those who aren't necessarily in this particular practice. But we do this practice and we do it with focus and with an appreciation that doing it over and over again, showing up in this way, cultivates something deeper in us that doesn't get really cultivated if we're zooming around. No pun intended there, but if we are. If we are so busy. Or if we are so spaced out. I'm looking at this wonderful um, little book that I've quoted from before uh, about Mel, Sojin Mel Weitzman that Sue um, uh, did years ago. Um, and she talks about that, uh, or he talks about uh, that you have to realize that in this Sangha, we're getting old. I'm getting pretty old here. And he says, um, we have to find ways to respond. It's becoming clear to us that people die. And then about himself, he sees, says, I see my role changing. I didn't often sit at people's bedsides, but I can see myself becoming more involved with people who are sick or dying. And I find that in order to be helpful, just being present and listening is fundamental. So we're all gonna be asked to sit much more often at the bedside. 
to become involved with people and ourselves who may be sick or dying. And Mel says, our practice of the middle way doesn't stimulate a lot of drama. It's more subtle. My own way is to be watchful and to give people space. To give people space, that's listening. Deep listening. He says, I wanna be ready to respond at the right moment. And everyone's practice is different. So I have to relate to everyone in a different way, according to where they are. Americans have a tendency, he said, to go from one thing to another looking for something new. Practice helps us to appreciate what we already have. If you have faith in your practice, you realize there's no need to try and gain something. If you simply devote yourself to one thing, then that will lead you to whatever it is you need. But if you're always looking around, you keep postponing the opportunity to go deeper. So what this book, The Five Invitations, asks of us, I feel over and over again through the beautiful stories, is to go deeper. Is to stay with it. Is to see the everyday. You know, the stories that are recounted here that tell us of people who perhaps others turned away from or who their whole lives were turned away from. And then also, it talks about the role of a caregiver, of the caregiver who admits needing rejuvenation, refuge, refreshment, love, connection, in order to keep on being caring. So we come and we go. Uh, sometimes we can continuously come for many, many years. And then as Mel said, sometimes a person might leave for a long time and come back again when they're ready, after they've experienced more of their life, more listening. So that's what we're doing. We're coming and we're going as our life unfolds. But we're not giving up. We're seeing our lives in this moment, opening up in new ways. This week I had 
the good fortune to have two different, very significant events, learnings about compassion and staying with practice. One was just the, uh, just last night, the opening uh, online of the socially engaged Buddhist training uh, Upaya. And both Joanna Macy and Roshi Joan Halifax offered really extraordinary introductory talks about their long practices, their inspirations and dedications to hearing the cries of the world. You might remember when we studied this book many years ago, Faces of Compassion, hard to believe many years ago, uh, not that many, it was three years ago, um, when we were meeting in a little teeny room um, with a fireplace in Inverness. We studied about the Bodhisattvas, and this, by the way, is a book that we'll read again this summer, Faces of Compassion, those of you who have it um, can just pick it up easily uh, and it's available everywhere. It's about the bodhisattvas one by one, the archetypes. The one who hears the cries of the world, of course, is Avalokiteshvara, also known as Kuan Yin and Kanon. Uh, she's here on my altar. Uh, and often known as, you know, the androgynous Bodhisattva, um, Avalokiteshvara was perhaps first um, seen as a male and has been able to transform uh, into a female and back and forth. Um, many, many people who study and practice Buddhism in the world look to Avalokiteshvara as their saint. In the book of Faces of Compassion, Tigan Dan Layton says, Avalokiteshvara hears the cries of suffering beings in need and simply responds unconditionally. How often, how often can we respond unconditionally? He says, unconditional acceptance and compassion to see each being, each being from insect to human, whether family or foe, from a viewpoint of care and sympathy. This is our practice, highly recommended, auspicious. Beautiful, beautiful ways of being in the world, of listening. Joanna Macy instructed us, please, please don't give up. Please don't turn away from what's difficult. She had many, many opportunities to not give up. And there she is at 91, still shining out her bodhisattva life. And then being met by Roshi Joan Halifax, 
who seems tireless, her energizer, bunny, bodhisattva presence in the world. There she was, really bowing, uh, so reverent, um, so grateful to Joanna, calling them, you know, old friends and also two old radical Dharma girls. It was wonderful to hear them. And I thought of so many old radical Dharma girls and guys. <laughs> um, but it was great to see these two women yesterday opening the practice. And what resounded for me as I looked at the 300 some faces uh, in that training, many of them gray haired, very intensely staring into the screen. When Joan and Joanna said, we're still at it, we're still at it. We're just coming into each other's orbit, into each other's force field and listening. And from that listening, we're motivated to practice, to bear witness, to take action. The other learning event happened at an online program called New Bridges, which is offered by Glide Memorial Church. It's about all the isms, starting with what they have called, and I found so inspirational, adultism. And the belief is, is that adultism is actually uh, the um, core of all the other isms. Our first experience of having that power differential and often, unfortunately, having our first experience of being other, of being unequal, of being in some way silenced or shamed. It stays with us, unfortunately until we can listen deeply, until we can look into it. And until we can really forgive ourselves, give ourselves a break. See that it may not be true. So yesterday, the awareness that was introduced to all of us at this wonderful training, a diverse group of us, 36, uh, the youngest is 19 and the oldest is 85. There are some white, mostly black, 
or biracial. It really feels like a diverse and safe group, safe in that they have built a, a beautiful container for people to be able to really share and to really listen. We've been meeting twice weekly. It's kind of an immersion experience. It's been going on for about four weeks and it's seven hours a week. And we have five more weeks to go. I have a partner, uh, Penny Maria, who's 31, who is an entrepreneur in New York City. Uh, she has her own um, black artist performing, um, what, performing marketing boutique business. She's really alive. And she's someone who comes from a family descended by slave, uh, slaves. Um, she met her great-grandmother as a little girl who was a slave. Uh, and she's the first who completed high school, went to college, got a scholarship to journalism school. So she has a master's in journalism. And she's just inspirational. And she says, I want to find out about all the isms. I want to find out how not to do them. <laughs> and she said, you're somebody good to practice with because she said, you're pretty old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Anyway, so the awareness was of amnesty. They say, we're practicing amnesty here. well, I hadn't really ever thought about myself being given amnesty. And then I realized that that's part of the safety that has been created. I looked up the word right away and I you know, found the definition, an official pardon for people who've been convicted of political offenses. I thought of Amnesty International I thought of the recent pardons of the final days of the last presidency. I thought of a broader bodhisattva effort of saving all beings. Perhaps I vow to pardon all offenses. And I know that we can all point to offenses so heinous that to think of pardoning is just seemingly impossible. And yet we have to find a way, we have to find a way in ourselves to not turn away, to not give up, just like Joanna Macy and Joan urged us yesterday. Just like John Lewis, the Dalai Lama. Think of the life of the Dalai Lama. 
and what he has tried to accomplish. Not turning away. Think of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. So many others. Think of Thich Nhat Hanh. Think of the Buddha who even made a murderer a monk. Yes, there are ways people transform. And in this practice, we see transformation all the time. We see it when people practice compassion. And they listen deeply. And as Frank says, it's easy to imagine that compassion requires some heroic strength that we do not possess. But we do. We all possess it. And we may believe that we're not up to the task. We're sick. We're too busy. We're taking care of something else but we can meet it. We can meet the suffering of the world. As Eden reminded me a couple of weeks ago, deep, slow, soft, quiet, brings us right back into that place of hearing and listening and responding Not in the usual way we think of doing something, but responding by continuing to practice and cultivate our hearts. Knowing that as Frank says, it's not a quality we possess, compassion, but it's one we access, it's inherent in the nature of reality. Love has been here all along. Leonard Cohen in a wonderful song says, we are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love, we disappear. We are all going to disappear. And as Frank pointed out to us last week, it's important not to focus on that moment of our death, but instead to focus on our life. And that's really the point of his book, the subtitle, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. This morning early, I got an email telling me that Sylvia Borstein's husband had died last night. And this is what it said. Seymour died peacefully this evening at home, surrounded by his family. 
When he knew a year ago that he would die, he finished his work with his patients, closed his practice. He made sure to connect with people to thank them for their role in his life. And then he hoped to live past several milestones. He hoped to get to live until our children's baby was born, and he did. He hoped to live until his ballot arrived so he could vote, and he did. He wanted to see the election results, and he did. He wanted to live until his 89th birthday, which was January 18th, so he did. And he told all his friends and family, those who visited in person and those who called by phone, that he'd had a wonderful life, full, full and filled with blessings. And then Sylvia said, thank you for being in his life. Love has been here all along. And we are so lightly here. In love, we are made. In love, we disappear. Listening to each other. Just sitting still opening ourselves. How is it that we are hearing the cries of the world right now? How is it we are practicing compassion? Compassion for others and ourselves. Let's talk with each other for 20 minutes. How are we hearing the cries of the world right now? How are we practicing compassion for ourselves and each other? What does it feel like when we are deeply listened to? what we are listening to when we look into another's eyes. I'll write all of that in the broadcast chat so you don't have to remember it all. Thank you very much for listening to my talk. <laughs>